0: Uh, I just want to say thank you again for uh, joining us at Christ City Church. Uh, My name is Matthew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. We seek to be a church that reflects the unconditional love and welcome of God, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, If you're joining us through one of our social media sites, through Facebook or YouTube or Twitch, uh, we just ask that you would uh, like and subscribe to the channel. Leave us a comment in the stream below. Uh, We want to hear from you, especially in this time of social distancing, and it helps us um, all to be reminded that uh, that we're not alone in this.
1: Here's Jordan with today's scripture reading. Today's reading is from Mark 9, verses 17 through 24. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. It is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Too often churches ask us to check our doubts at the door to leave our most important questions behind. But the reality is that we all have deep questions that we wrestle with throughout life, some of which we continue to wrestle with now. At Christ City Church, we believe that when we wrestle with our biggest questions, it actually deepens our faith. Doubt isn't the enemy of faith, but rather is often its companion. One of the most beautiful lines in the Bible is in Mark 9, which Jordan just read. When the man sees Jesus and he says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And that captures the paradox of faith, that there are things that we know and that we cling to, and there are things that we don't yet know and we may never know. During this series, people in our own community at Christ City Church, they will be sharing how they have wrestled through their most important question. And This morning, we have three folks from our church community sharing their questions. Anna Harchie, Chuck Lamar, and Ashley Orm. Annie, uh, Annie, Anna is originally a Midwest girl who came to DC to serve uh, in the public sector, and she regularly serves in Kid City. Uh, Chuck is a native Washingtonian uh, who is a voracious reader and a diehard cowboy fan. Chuck also serves in Kid City. Uh, And then Ashley, uh, she came to DC by way of Houston, Texas, and after pursuing her master's degree, she serves in corporate diversity and inclusion. Uh, She serves on our worship team. And let me pray for them as they come. God, I do pray that in these friends of ours, as they come and they share their questions, some of them that are in the past, some of them are very much in the present and right now, God, I pray that we would hear in their own wrestling with you and with faith something that may stir in us, something that may stir our faith and uh, turn our gaze again towards you, the one who can hold all of our hopes, all of our faith, and all of our doubts and all of our questions. God, you are not a God that recoils from our questions. God, you, you receive them as we bring them to you, as, as a father would his children. So God, I pray for these friends as they come. God, I pray that you would um, speak to us through them. In Christ's name, amen.
2: My name is Anna, and my most important question is, who is God when his promises appealing doesn't happen? At three years old, I was diagnosed with a hearing loss. I am deaf in my right ear and have a moderate to severe loss in my left ear. Outfitted with hearing aids, and with the endearing support of my parents, my sister, and accomplished audiologist at my back, I lived and still live a life without barriers. My childhood was full of all of the normal things due to my overtly social tendencies, uh, individual interests, and a stubborn spirit to prove to others I could do anything I put my mind to. My hearing loss was just a fact about me. I accepted it. For 26 years of my life, I enjoyed stable hearing. That meant that my audiogram never changed. Then almost four years ago, on July 23rd, 2016, for no explainable reason, I began to hear the sounds of tinnitus and experience fluctuating hearing. I had experienced tinnitus before, but it always went away. This time it was persistent. The buzzing, tinnitus sounds different to everyone, but to me it sounds like it's persistent non-stop buzzing. The buzzing sound changed what I was hearing and I had to fight through that buzzing sound to hear as I did before. My hearing fluctuated and my hearing losses and gains were all over the audiogram chart. Typically, when you lose hearing, it's gone. But I would lose hearing and sometimes gain it back. My doctors were, and still are, perplexed. This uh, case, my case is a mystery. So this is a context to the story that I share with you today. Suddenly, what I viewed as a simple fact about my life became a daily, hourly challenge to participate in my fully social life. I grew up in the church, and we do what we, I did what we hope all members of the church body do when crisis strikes. I turned to my faith. I opened the word and had verses uh, in my heart. I invited others to pray for me and with me, I doubled down on seeking the Lord's faithful presence. I prayed for His healing. I spoke Bible verses out loud. I did everything within my power and then realized this is what faith is, is trusting God when something doesn't make sense. God had led my path so clearly prior to this marker in my life. I was confident that His goodness would prevail. I memorized Romans 4, verses 20 to 21 Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Lord, help me in my unbelief. I wanted to be strengthened in my faith. I wanted to give glory to God. And I read over and over again the stories in the New Testament of how Jesus healed the sick, the blind. This would be me. I promised to tell the world of his healing work. In late August 2016, while on a beach trip with friends and in a private prayer walk on a beach, I felt the Lord's peace, and I said out loud the verse in Mark 5, Go in peace, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Be freed from your suffering. A wave of peace and comfort fell over me, and I felt assured that things would change. Over the course of the following week, my tinnitus subsided, and day by day, I would tick my hearing aid volume down to home base. had happened. I was overcome with emotions, joy with Thanksgiving. My community celebrated with me. God had heard me. I don't want to mitigate this healing as it was full of the Holy Spirit, but my most important question requires I keep plunging forward. My joy was brief. Three weeks later, my grandfather passed away. And looking back in my journal of the season, I wrote a feeling in a funk that nothing feels just right in the moment. I was struggling to process the last eight weeks of fluctuating hearing, the grief of my grandfather's passing, and looking ahead, the understanding that my beloved job was coming to an end with the presidential transition. I turned again to God and wrote in my journal, Lord, exist in the cracks, move in the awkward, piece this all together in your way, guide, shape, move. I turn to you as the only constant in my life. I am naturally an optimist, so feeling in a funk and down was an entirely new experience that frankly knocked me over. Through the encouragement and support of dear friends, I sought out Christian counseling, and if you get nothing else from my story, please hear that counseling is good. It is necessary, and I cannot recommend it enough. My hearing dropped again in November. It was clear that this was not a one-time fluke and thus entered a season of documenting my hearing changes. To perform a hearing test, I had to sit in a soundproof booth and listen through headphones to the various decibel levels of different tones, clicking a button every time I heard a sound. These hearing tests are exhausting. I needed a whole army of prayer warriors to even get me in the room. A friend told me to place Jesus in the booth with me. An audiologist would get me set up, and then she would come across to the booth across from me to perform the hearing test, and I would pick a chair in the room and say, Okay, Jesus, I invite you here. That is your chair. I pray for your peace and your calm. I would look at that chair countless times throughout the test as a kind of assurance I was not alone. In an attempt to keep my brain free of the clutter so I could listen to the sounds and hit the button, The frequency of these hearing tests increased my anxiety as every single time I was right, something was different, and those changes were more often than not negative that I had lost hearing. Upon recognizing that this was the appearance of something more, I traveled home to perform a hearing test with my beloved audiologist on a Friday evening I will never forget. I entered the booth, performed my hearing test, Sat across from Dr. Whitelaw, and we went through every audiogram, every bit of my case-to-date poking holes, asking questions. I think you may have Meniere's disease, she said. It's possible that you have lose your hearing over the course of your life, and I don't know how much longer you have with your current hearing. We wept together. My world was turned upside down. I haven't told you this yet, but my greatest fear in life is actually to lose my hearing, to go deaf. I think because of my limited hearing abilities, I find joy in the sounds of my family's laughter and the musical harmony and the sounds of the doxology filling the Hope College Chapel every Sunday night. I did not know a way forward without even the little hearing I had. I underwent more testing over Christmas that year and that doctor agreed with my audiologist that despite not having all the symptoms, Meniere's years disease would be most likely cause to my troubles. Armed with the disease name to research, lifestyle changes to implement, I returned back to D.C. My abundantly social life took a massive hit. Places were either too loud or too echoey for me to fully participate in the same way I had before. I became a homebody, a bit of a turtle, if you will, uh, only coming out when a situation felt safe and secure, or I was with somebody that didn't mind repeating themselves multiple times. At the same time, church, normally a safe and welcoming place for me, became a dreaded place for me to visit every week. I could hardly hear the pastors, and worse for me, I could not participate and lift up my voice in singing to praise the Lord. I stopped going. I was asking God this question. I had been healed before, so why wasn't I now? Why was my faith not enough? Over and over in the Bible, we read of Jesus's healing, the woman who could not stop bleeding, reaching out, touching Jesus's cloak. I understand her desire and anguish to try anything. In Matthew 14, 14, Jesus stepped ashore, saw the wild crowd, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. Where is my compassion? The message version of Matthew 19.26 says, Jesus took, looked hard at them and said, no chance at all if you think you can do it yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. Do I not trust God? Have I not laid down my life? Who is this God that does not bring the healing he promises? There is no way for me to wrap this up into a nicely tied bow for us today because I've deduced that this story will not end until I reach heaven. I've realized that I cannot constantly be praying for healing. Instead, I've shifted my thinking into what I call waiting in the not yet. I will be healed in heaven. It will happen. Maybe it will happen before then, but I do not have the emotional capacity to ask for healing in the now. If he wants it to happen, It's clear that he can do it, and he knows I'm open to it. But praise be to God, Church, that I have not had any hearing changes or tinnitus sounds since March 2018. And I sincerely hope that I do not again for quite some time, hopefully never. But I have scars from this persistent trying and extended season of my life. I do not feel that God is good. As a classic Enneagram Seven, I don't like to engage in my anger at God and I'm far better at rejecting spending time alone with in prayer. I have moments when I want to engage in my faith better. I have not walked away from my faith. I do believe in God. But my faith is very much at a stagnant place. I realize I should probably return to counseling. But trusting God is very hard. I want this wall to come down. I want to stop being mad and trust him again. I suppose I still look for the good. I will still share my story, but I have to reconcile some of this anger and find a way forward with who God says he is. There are two bright spots you have been witness to church that I have recognized in writing my most important question. First is in Paul who showed up in the midst of this roller coaster season of my life and around. He's the one who got me to go back to church again and worked with our pastors to help them understand how to support me in my trials. Perhaps most significant to my personal faith, the 2017 me thought I would never use my voice in a choir again to praise God. You all have seen that miracle come true and been part of that miracle. I am grateful for the shelter of this church a church that invites questions, and a body that has walked with me so closely. I am hopeful that this space will encourage my faith as I seek to answer my most important question. Who is God when his promises of healing doesn't happen?
3: Is it time to go home? As we come out of celebrating seven years as a body, I've been reminded how much I love this church community. I came to Christ here, my wife and I have both baptized here, we've made lifelong friends, and Matthew and Justin have both been instrumental in the growth of my relationship with Christ. This body and this community are what have kept me here, but I've been wrestling with the idea, it's a time to go home. I grew up in Washington, DC, when Chocolate City was still a real thing. Every aspect of my life was enveloped in blackness, My family, my friends, my school, and church were all made up of black and brown people. Not until attending attending a Catholic high school where Mass was mandatory did I encounter white people in general, but specifically the intersection of white people in faith. Catholic Mass was vastly different from anything I've ever experienced in my home church, so it was easy to dismiss as different or other. At 17, I was tired of the church that I grew up in and uninterested in the white church experience that was mass, so I walked away from church altogether. After walking away, I had what I would have described as a happy and normal life, but as he is prone to do, Christ thrilled my comfortable life. My wife Casey and I were visiting friends in LA who pressed us to come to church with them. After hemming and hawing, we agreed to go as it felt like a small price to pay for them being such generous hosts. I remember begrudgingly walking to the church and being initially struck with the diversity. There are black people, Latinx people, Asian and white people all working, worshiping together. This is the first time i had seen a white pastor who was not a priest or on television. I can't remember most of the sermon, but the part that stuck with me was the pastor recounting the feeling he has when he returns home from travel and the reception he receives from his family when he arrives home. As I sat processing all this, I heard a word from the Lord that was crystal clear and unmistakable. Welcome home, I've missed you so much. So on February 3rd, 2013, I realized it was time to come home. So after my road to Damascus moment, we started to search for a church. I sometimes laugh about the idea of doing a search with no idea of what you're searching for, but it became obvious during our search that diversity was important. When we found the East Side, we knew this was where the Lord wanted us to be. I can't, explain, I can't explain it other than it just felt right. This was part of God's plan. Even though there were some big differences from what I had grown up with, it felt like we could put roots down here. It could feel like home. It took me a while to embrace the differences. There was no call or response between the pastor and congregation. There were no amens or hallelujahs. Contemporary Christian music took some getting used to. Contemplative worship also took some time. Not sure if worshiping in the dark will ever feel normal. There were times when I felt this was closer to a subdued Catholic mass than the loud and boisterous church tradition I grew up in. But again, what was redoundingly clear over and over was this is where the Lord wanted me. The Lord placed Jeremiah 29 in my heart, and I connected with the idea of a people in temporary exile. But even in that exile, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Church, I am here to tell you that Yahweh is a God of his word. And in this new and uncomfortable place, this exile of sorts, he has given me hope in the future. He has kept me from harm, seen and unseen. I have called on him in prayer and he has listened. My spirit has prospered. I've grown so close to the Lord, closer than I've ever been, And I want to shout about it. I want to declare his goodness with a joyful noise. There's a gospel song titled, An Incredible God Deserves Incredible Praise. And I want to give the Lord his praise, but I feel stifled at Christ City Church. Sometimes it still doesn't feel like home. The stifling has stirred a longing in my heart that has slowly grown over the last four years. Grown from a whisper to a deafening roar. Is this exile forever? Is it time to go home, back to a predominantly black church? There will be a time where there's no black church or white church, but unfortunately, that is not the case currently here on earth. It wasn't the case when Richard Island, tired of preaching in balconies, left the Methodist church to found the AME church. It also wasn't the case when the Southern Baptists split from the Northern Baptists over slaveholders not being allowed to be missionaries. Let's be clear racism established white and black churches. We have to acknowledge that Christianity in America is rife with the country's original sin of racism and that there is hard and painful work in front of the body of Christ. And as long as our white brothers and sisters in Christ refuse to do the work, or do it half-heartedly, or when it's cool and convenient, or for the gram, then I fear that diverse churches like ours will see a constant exodus of black members as they also wrestle with whether or not this multicultural church is really home. There's a cost to this multicultural church idea, and it's paid by the people of color in the body who are not integrated and included, but who instead are forced to assimilate if the white also if the white church is serious about doing the work of racial reconciliation it must address the disparity that 81 percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and eight percent of black people did there's a disconnect in those numbers that echoes very loudly on Sunday mornings an electoral un- In a lecture on his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, theologian Reverend Dr. James Cone says, the quote says, quote, the cross could also redeem white lynching and their defendants, but not without a profound cause, not without revelation of the wrath and justice of God, which executes divine judgment with a demand for repentance and reparations as a presupposition of divine mercy and forgiveness. Most whites want mercy and forgiveness, but not justice and reparation. Reconciliation, but not liberation. They want resurrection, but not the cross, not the cross." End quote. I think that the church, that in the church's quest for diversity, I and other people of color are asked to put themselves in the religious culture and expression on the back burner for the sake of diversity. While it seems that there's a growing desire for multicultural churches, diversity in the evangelical church still looks like people of color joining white congregations and rarely white people joining predominantly non-white congregations. It is not on members of color to make a church diverse. Let me repeat, It is not on the members of color to make a church diverse. Is the diversity in your liturgy, is it in your worship, your preaching, your posture? If not, then the number of white people in the congregation is irrelevant. I'm a high identifying black man and is an integral piece of my identity. In church, I'm so tired of checking my identity at the door. If I don't have to check my identity with Christ, why do I have to do it in this house? If the church is supposed to be a family, a place of refuge, a place where we can leave the baggage of the world at the foot of the cross, how can I do that if if I'm not bringing it all in with me? Now I'm pretty sure no one's gonna kick me out of Christ city if I catch a quickening of the Holy Ghost. But how often do we discourage others with just our eyes our tone and our vibe. What would happen if someone spoke in tongues on a mic or caught the Holy Ghost and danced and shouted? I asked because we barely get a clap going or sustained. And once I saw the staring and gawking when the visitors spontaneously broke out into the liturgical dances they worship, and she was white. Should we not all be excited to see and learn and willingly try the different ways that people exalt the Father? The idea that God in all of his majesty wants to be praised, honored, and worshiped in the way that's most comfortable to us, that's putting our very big God into our very small box. One of my favorite songs is, Oh Come to the Altar by Elevation Worship. I told you that CCM music grew on me. Um, I recently heard the Spanish language version and it made a song that I already loved, just that much more beautiful. Now I get to praise the Lord in a brand new way in a different language and join the sibling in Christ and worshiping with them in their mother tongue. That is diversity and inclusion in the body of Christ. I don't, I don't want to just sit with the people who are different and watch them. I want to learn from and embrace those differences. Y'all, 2020 has been a doozy already. And in all of the turmoil, I've needed the comfort that people get when they go home. One of the pastors I've been learning from is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III of Trinity United Church in Christ in Chicago, where their church motto is unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. Pastor Moss has reminded me of the prophetic message that love and justice are inseparable companions, which form the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I needed to be reminded that just as God was with Jesus in His suffering, He's with us in our suffering too. Reminded that we worship a Savior who was a persecuted minority who died at the hands of the state. Reminded of all the scriptures that have been used by Black people to carry on for over 400 years. Psalm 72:4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Psalms 9.9, 9, the Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Or Psalms 12.5, or Isaiah 58, six through nine, or Galatians 6, one through three. Rem- I was reminded of the old Negro spiritual come by here, my Lord. Not the whitewashed rendition of Kumbaya, but a song of lamentation, calling out to the Lord for action, calling out to a God of justice to right wrongs. Indeed, to be reminded that Yahweh is a God of his word. Reminded that joy comes in the morning and trouble don't last always. I needed to be reminded of home.
4: Come by here, Lord, come by here. Come by here, Lord, come by here. Come by here, Lord, come by here. Oh Lord, come by here, Somebody needs you, Lord, come by here Somebody need you, Lord, come by here Somebody needs you, Lord, come by here Oh Lord come by here somebody's praying Lord come by here somebody's praying Lord come by here somebody's praying Lord come by here oh Lord come by here mm, Lord come by
3: for a lot of people, D.C. is a transient city, but it's also my hometown. It's a place that my family has called home for generations. It's always been tough for me welcoming new friends to my hometown knowing that most likely their stay is temporary. While some friends are created. Sometimes the new friends and new traditions aren't enough. I've learned to accept that people still leave because sometimes it's time to go home.
5: Taking me at face value, there's a lot that might surprise you. You maybe wouldn't guess, for example, that yes, Both of my parents are black, and my great-grandfather was a slave. You maybe wouldn't guess that when I first moved to Washington, D.C., I lived in a convent. You maybe wouldn't guess that I'm a self-proclaimed tomboy-turned-feminist-turned-womanist. You maybe wouldn't realize that I was homeschooled for high school, or that as a young person, I ice-skated very seriously and can still do a sow-cow jump and kind of do a toe-loop or that I've nearly died twice, once in a car accident and the other time in childbirth. But I'm still here, and I've always felt a little awkward and insecure. Sometimes I'm good at hiding that, but other times the bubbly, polite veneer wears off and I'm left alone to my thoughts to ask God, where do I belong? And that question is, at its core, one of identity. It is me saying to God, With all the seeming randomness of my own personal experiences and with the ways in which society struggles to categorize me and my character so that I can be tucked away neatly into a bin with a label and an instruction manual, God, where do you see me at home? What space should I inhabit here? Tell me about the ways that I uniquely reflect you, God." As I've been exploring this question, I very naturally thought back to some of my earliest understandings of my own identity. And it may come to no surprise that I didn't really think about the ways I was unique until I was around other children who were quite different than me. I grew up in a predominantly black Houston neighborhood and I never lacked playmates. I had my siblings and two girls next door to play with. I didn't think of myself as being unique then. I was just me. We were all just who we were. Then I went to school. My parents managed to get my older brother and me enrolled in a public school in a different part of town where there was an advanced learning program and a majority white student body. My best friend there was a girl we'll call Vicki. She was the kind of girl who would purposefully wear socks that didn't match because she could. She was the kind of girl who the popular boys would sing to with childish refrains of, Hey, Vicky, you're so fun. You're so fun. You blow my mind. Hey, Vicky. Hey, Vicky. She also had blonde hair and blue eyes and was adored by everyone. I couldn't help but compare myself to her. She was completely herself, seemingly completely secure in her sense of self, and naturally won the praise of everyone who met her. Then there was me. I was painfully shy. My naturally curly hair was usually in pigtails or gelled down in the front and pulled back into a frizzy shrub at the nape of my neck. Our school's drama teacher told me in front of my class that my voice was too deep for me to play Alice or even the white rabbit in our class play of Alice in Wonderland. I was known as the quiet one because I didn't wanna talk and thereby open myself up to criticism. When school let out for the summers, I'd breathe a sigh of relief, like many kids. I wasn't by any means a disengaged student, but as each academic year would come to a close, I'd ride the yellow school bus home and get off the bus after it made about 12 or so stops, walk home and be grateful that I'd not have to carry the weight of my backpack anymore. I was also anxious to release the weight of carrying my identity into the classroom day to day. Summer meant summer day camp and my siblings and I would go to camp in our neighborhood or camp at a city program that provided free boxed lunch. That meant two things that I loved, salami sandwiches and fellow black campers. But I was even awkward at those camps. I was over-churched and thereby out of touch with most kids my age. I didn't come to camp knowing the best of 90s rap or pop songs and hadn't seen any cool new movies, but man, oh man, I could sing you some church music and tell you the storyline for just about any classic old musical. Kids at Camp mostly accepted me though. Fast forward to me being an adult and people's reactions to my identity have been far more colorful and nearly completely race-based. Comments range from total strangers asking, what are you and if you have children, what would your children be? To, you may be yellow, but you'll always be an N-word. What was hard to explain to others in the aftershock of their statements was that I knew who I was, and I liked who I was. But the space I was taking up was confusing to people. Only very recently did I feel vindicated by reading a New York Times article. The piece was by a poet named Caroline Randall Williams, who is Black, though a significant portion of her genetic makeup is European. As Caroline says, I have no white people in my genealogy and living memory, no voluntary whiteness. She goes on to say that she very strongly reprimands the way some white southerners glorify their ancestors and the memory of the old South, particularly because in her words, they imagine a world of benevolent masters and speak with misty eyes of gentility and honor and the land. They deny plantation rape or explain it away or question the degree of frequency with which it occurred. These days, opportunities and our understanding of self hinge so much on our race. I've struggled to deal with other people's discomfort about who I am. Now, I don't say this to invite a pity party, and I do realize the ways in which I've had privileges that even other members of my own family have not had. But as someone who grew up rooted in church communities, I struggled to understand how, as Christ followers, we could all have the mind of Christ and be robed in the righteousness of Christ, bear his image, but not all be alike. The churches I'd attended growing up pointed me towards sameness. So like everyone else at those churches, I wore my WWJD bracelets, I sang DC Talk songs, I wore cheesy Christian t-shirts like the ones that said Jesus King of Kings instead of Reese's Peanut Butter Cup but I also wanted to be able to embrace my differences. I've been learning to do that more and more these days. I'm comfortable saying I'm a womanist and a Southerner. I'm Black, even if that confuses people. I'm vegan, but from a state that loves barbecue. I lived in a convent when I first moved to D.C., not to become a nun, but because I needed cheap housing. And I still know far too many lyrics and choreography to old musicals. And I believe that there is a place for me to belong in God's kingdom, in his family. So I wanna close with a scripture that I found especially meaningful as I think about where I fit. The scripture specifically describes how each of us with our varied spiritual gifts fits into God's kingdom. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So that means I am a part Other people and even I myself may continue to struggle to figure out which part, but regardless of whether I'm a foot or a chin, maybe a spleen, I am a part. I belong.
6: Thank you to Anna and to Chuck and to Ashley for sharing their most important question. Friends, we've been given a gift, a gift of, of story, a gift of, of experience, uh, a gift of, 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 of compassion. Uh, the word compassion means to suffer with and, and so the invitation for us, the invitation I think of the Spirit is is not just to say, wow well, that was great they, they did a good job, but to feel the feelings that the Spirit has put in us, um, those feelings of, of, of discomfort, those feelings of not knowing what to do. Um, the Spirit is, is moving in each of us and in all of us and, and the thing about those questions is that they aren't just disembodied intellectual processing, they are the deepest longings at people's cores and they have something to say to who we are as a community. Because some of those questions are about community as well, and some of those implications are about who we are together, what kind of space we hold, what kind of body we are, what room is there for one another and that comes not just by you know visual superficials, you know a, a nod across the room, and admiring, oh, look how many folks we have here of, of, of all different races and ethnicities, but it comes from actually hearing the pain. That that people feel, and the wrestling that we're going through. Hearing that and and responding to that, and and listening to what the spirit might be saying, and challenging us, challenging you. Is there something to do about it? Is there some way to grow in your in yourself and to help you grow our community? There are a number of ways that that you could respond. You could. One way is just to to continue to sit with it. Don't don't run away from the discomfort if you're feeling discomfort. We'll never grow if we don't name and acknowledge the very real pain and, and loss and lack that we have. And so there's always the invitation of the Holy Spirit in that regard. Another way that you might respond is to think about your own most important question, what are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with? Write down some thoughts, you don't need to do a talk, you don't need to broadcast it, but, but do that work with the Holy Spirit and, and maybe invite others into that conversation with you. And it is a gift just like all of these testimonies, these, 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 these stories have been, they've been gifts to us. And in the brokenness that we've seen, and the brokenness that we receive in the body of Christ, we're invited into that. To know that Jesus is with us in that, and to know that, that we're also called to come alongside each other, even if it's hard, even if it's challenging. Because we are the body of Christ, and we're invited to do the same with one another. I want to close <laughs> with a couple of things. Um, I'm, I'm always skeptical when we just post quotes from famous people without the context of the work that they've been doing but um, I think that I, I, I want to do it anyway um, so this is something that John Lewis said that uh, resonates for today um, he said do not get lost in a sea of despair be hopeful be optimistic our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. For eight, eight decades, um, John Lewis graced Grace are earthen and led by example in many of those ways an example in action of words of another John who said in 1 John 3.18, Let us not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. Or as it was translated in the message paraphrase, let's not just talk about love, let's practice real love. As we continue to Be the church as we continue to process even the words and the stories and the pain that we've heard. I pray that we would hear that challenge, that invitation of the Holy Spirit to love in actions and in truth, not just in words or speech. Go in peace, friends, to love one another and to serve the Lord.